0: Hello everyone, I'm Laura Marzi, and thank you all for listening in today on this special Line on Leave podcast. We've never been through a time quite like this. We've all lost our normal with COVID-19 almost overnight. But now, three months later, many businesses are about to enter their new normal as parts of the country slowly reopen. Today's Line on Leave podcast is going to discuss what that opening will look like. What are some of the best practices for a safe reopening? And where exactly are we in the pandemic today? I'm delighted that we have some experts here to help us answer some of these questions. They include Dr. Adam Seidner, who is the Harford's Chief Medical Officer, as well as Karen Howard, who is our Assistant Vice President of Benefits, and also the Hartford's Absence Management Practice Lead, Kimberly Mashburn. So, Dr. Seidner, we'll start with some of your perspectives. You've worked on many public health issues, including pandemics and vaccine development. What is it about this virus that makes it so dangerous, and are we headed in the right direction?
1: Well, basically today we have over 1.75 million cases in the U.S. with over 103,000 U.S. American deaths. What makes this different is that it is three times more contagious than the flu and it is more lethal as well. So like the flu, it's an RNA virus. And what we're seeing is a significant part of the population that is having severe symptoms. Now realize this is a respiratory condition. It's spread between people. And 80% of people will have mild to no symptoms, 15% will have severe symptoms, and 5% of the population will wind up needing hospitalization in the intensive care unit. And so it's because of the contagious aspect as well as the lethality that we see a significant problem when it comes to managing this, in addition to the fact we don't have a vaccine. So even though we don't have a vaccine, there are other abilities that we do have, and some medications are being used to look at managing the virus. Remdesivir is one. It's an antiviral agent that's been shown to decrease those hospitalizations by four days and also decrease deaths. There are other medications, Losartan, which works on an ACE2 receptor, which, again, is how the virus gets into us to cause all of the symptoms that we see. Now remember, 50% of people may show no symptoms whatsoever, but the other 50% will see things alike, shortness of breath, cough, they may have a fever, sore throat, they may have a decreased appetite, they could even have gastrointestinal symptoms like diarrhea, nausea, and another area that we found is that people have lost their sense of taste and smell. In addition to all this, individuals can experience generalized muscle aches. So between the treatments and knowing what the symptoms are, we're able to go through and address some other issues, such as meaningful metrics and capabilities. And part of that requires testing. So there's different aspects of testing. First, I'll talk about the types of testing. There's diagnostic testing. And that tells you, again, are you infected? Do you have this virus? And there's two tests that are out there. One's called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and an FIA, or fluorescent immunoantigen assay. So this basically tells us if the virus is present in the individual. The other test that people are familiar with is the antibody test, and that's really a surveillance test and it tells you whether or not someone has developed antibodies to the virus. So between the two tests, we're able to determine, are you infected and did you already have the virus? As we go through, then we have to look at the quality of these tests. And so we have to understand that on the diagnostic test side, that up to 30% of the tests could have false negatives. So that's pretty high. It means that even though you are infected with the COVID-19, the test may not identify it as such. And there's an issue on the antibody test quality as well. And that is 50% have a false positive in some cases. So again, they may say that you have antibodies, but in fact you don't. So that is a problem. And then finally, the volume of testing. We should be testing approximately 1% of the population per week, or roughly 500,000 people per day. So the testing does help us start to define some of the metrics that we wanna look at. The metrics include things like number of cases, which I mentioned earlier, hospitalizations, ICU admissions, those uh, deaths that we're seeing, and usually that's measured as case fatality rates, Um, based on those that have tested positive um, and also have against those who have tested positive and died. Um, But there are other metrics that we're looking at, cases per population, so it could be per 1,000 population or 100,000 population. This way we can normalize the data and compare cities, metro areas to rural areas or less populated areas. And then there are other metrics that we look at, such as daily growth rate, and or doubling rate of cases, all of this really can help us identify where the next outbreak may come. Or we may even see decreasing rates. That's the good news. So if we do start seeing decreasing rates, meaning we've reached a peak and we're in a plateau, we like to see those rates either plateaued or decreasing for at least two weeks before we're able to say the virus is contained, controlled, and we're able to move forward. And then finally, the other capability to consider is really contact tracing. And so being able to go and talk to individuals who test positive, find out where they've been, who they've talked to, who they've experienced and spent time with, all of that can come together and help us utilize tests appropriately, and do isolation as well. And in that, we've actually had some help from our librarians since they've been volunteering to help with the contact tracing, and so they're making phone calls and doing some of the follow-up calls for a lot of the cases that we're identifying. So that's excellent, and we thank them for all of their help. Then we can look at some issues around reopening guidelines. And so how and when can we start reopening? You see, many states have. And when and how can we get back into the office? So once we're in a plateau or a decreasing in the rates, then we know that we've got the virus under control and we can look at a number of other areas. We have reopening guidelines from the Center for Disease Control, from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, from the World Health Organization, and Department of Labor, and many others. So taking all of those into consideration, we've got some good ideas as when it's safe to reopen. And you see, again, many governors have started reopening in a phased approach, many parts of the states. Now, what about going back to an office environment? And again, people work in many different types of environments, but I think we have to know the number of local cases, and we can look at this that's all being mapped, and we can look at different jurisdictions, we can look beyond just a state level and get down to county level. We can look at the number of hospitalizations, those ICU admissions I mentioned earlier. All of that needs to be looked at to determine is it safe to, again, open certain businesses. And all of this is done on the backdrop of having universal source control, so we're still going to be wearing face masks or face coverings. We're going to have social distancing. We're going to maintain our hand washing with soap and water and sanitization, especially as we get back into the workplace, and there'll be other things that you'll see. There'll be questionnaires, screen questionnaires that may ask If you've been in contact with someone known to have COVID in the last week or so, you'll be asked if you have any of the symptoms that I outlined earlier, and you may be asked about your temperature. You don't want to have a fever, which is defined at 38 degrees centigrade or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. All of this will then allow the individual to know that they are safe, that they won't be transmitting COVID 19 to co workers, but as I mentioned earlier, 50% of people may have no symptoms. They're asymptomatic. So what else do we need to do? Well, other things that we'll do are we'll have a whole hierarchy of controls, and those controls are in a different category, such as elimination. So if we do find a COVID 19 infected worker, we want them to stay at home. We may be able to use telework for certain occupations. And or we want to make sure solo workstations are maintained. We really don't want people sharing phones and workstations so there's no contamination that can occur. And the other thing is we can look at engineering and environmental controls. So you'll see barriers, plexiglass, which I call as sneeze and cough guards that are out there. We'll try to maintain six-foot distances. Again, the mask and hand hygiene with sanitizers, the rub. Uh, from the alcohol or soap and water. Very important to continue. And then there's administrative controls. We'll have staggered presence. There'll be a phased approach as to what employees come in and when. There'll be new signage. People need to look for that. And there'll be training and education. So we want to make sure that all of this comes together in addition to limiting meeting size, our conference rooms going to be used or not used? And even limiting, from an administrative control perspective, travel. So there may be new restrictions on who travels and where. So all of that is really what we need to keep in mind as we move forward. And one of the things as people come back in is we have to recognize that it's a difficult time for many employees. Um, they may express, you know, anxiety and we need to be able to show sympathy and empathy. Sympathy if they have the infection, empathy just realizing how difficult this time has been for everybody. And so we want to communicate the company's support. All of that together with a review of the company policies and procedures for COVID-19 and understanding what the quarantine or self-isolation periods will be if people have symptoms, when they can return to work, what PTO, the personal time off, sick leave options are, paid leave, FMLA. We need to keep adherent to all of the ADA, the EEOC, privacy rules. There's a lot to go on, and the employers will need to clean areas, provide the sanitizers, and really be able to refer to HR, Human Resources, or the Employee Assistance Program employees that are anxious. And we should periodically check in on employees, whether it be the supervisors or human resources or in small companies. The CEO may want to check in on employees as well. So with all of that, there are resources for taking care of the anxieties and helping the employees, whether it be their own doctors, if they have primary care doctors, or all of the EAP resources. And if it's a small company that doesn't have robust EAP resources, there are other organizations that are readily available to help those employees that are having a difficult time. So SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services National Disaster Group, has a distress helpline, so you can go to SAMHSA and call up and get plugged in with some help. The other areas, the CDC has mental health and coping guidelines during COVID-19. The World Health Organization has advice for the public, in addition to all the national call lines that are available, and being able to call 2-1-1. There are plenty of opportunities to make sure that we have safe return to work and that for the anxious employees, that they have resources to help them through this difficult time and doing everything, knowing what the public health interventions are while we're waiting for the vaccine to be developed. Again, we don't have a vaccine today. We'll have one probably toward the end of 2021. That will give us an opportunity to get our economy going again and also address all of the safety issues for good medical health. Thank you and stay well.
0: Thank you very much for that comprehensive update. And I'm gonna switch gears now and direct the discussion to Kimberly. Kimberly, employers are obviously faced with unprecedented absences during this time of work from home. What does the landscape look like moving forward?
2: Laura, as we look ahead to this transition back to the work site, we know that even before the pandemic, returning employees safely to work was a concern for many of our employers. The Hartford earlier this year surveyed employers and employees, and that survey showed that 59% of employers said they really needed to develop a more comprehensive return to work program. 41% of the employees that we surveyed said they didn't have enough support to transition safely and effectively back to work after they were gone from the office for an extended period of time. In addition, we know that COVID-19 is not only changing the way that some workplaces look and operate, but also how they're regulated. The federal government and several states have enacted new leave laws or significantly changed, updated, and modified existing laws. Here at the Hartford, we're continuing to monitor those updates and you can find the information on those on our COVID-19 workplace absence website at www.thehartford.com forward slash coronavirus.
0: Thanks, Kimberly. Yeah, definitely huge changes afoot. And would love to uh, move the conversation over to Karen on how those plans to return to office, return to work are shaping up. Karen, so many employers in HR departments have that huge task ahead of them. Could you actually detail for us what goes into putting together a comprehensive return to work plan?
3: Sure, Laura, there's a lot to consider for sure. And the three areas I'll focus on are around planning, communications, and flexibility. So building, in terms of building out a return to work team, who's on that team? As we all know, right, we've got probably different size employers maybe listening in and some may need to right size based upon their organization. And that may change even by industry as well, too. At the Hartford, our crisis management team is leveraging expertise from many areas of the company to develop our approach, and that includes individuals from our health and safety group, our business operations, real estate, and technology, just to name a few. As companies build out their teams, there's some common elements and safeguards organizations should consider in building out their own plans. First and foremost, following local, state, and federal guidelines, To make sure we're compliant with those is important, and multi-state employers must be also mindful of each jurisdiction. So your plan or timing may need to be adjusted for local needs as well. Other considerations may also include, do we have the adequate office space for social distancing, and considering your medical screening approach, whether that's testing or a medical attestation. Reinforcing the use of healthy hygiene practices for employees is important, and making sure we've got the right cleaning procedures within the office. We also need to think about common spaces. Many of us may have cafeterias or conference rooms or auditoriums. How are we going to use those common spaces during this time? And coming back to work, we may want to think about a phased approach. Maybe not everybody comes back to work. And so there will be some who continue to work remotely. And then I think lastly, we've got to make sure that we're communicating constantly with employees, making sure those communication channels are open, and making sure we're training the staff and all of the safety actions we are taking. They want to make sure that they feel comfortable coming back to our workplaces. Communications is an area that I think we can't underemphasize. It's also so important for employees to understand that the organizations in which we work are making the health and safety of employees a priority. So we all feel safe when we do return to the office or the work site. And so this approach should include proactive messaging, making sure we're providing regular updates as to how the situation is evolving over time, communicating any return to work plan early and often, and being transparent about what we know and what we don't. Also informing managers and supervisors first. They're the front line for our employees. And so those folks will be getting a lot of the questions from employees directly. And let's make sure there's no surprises. Let's let employees know what to expect when they return and how the workplace may be operating differently. And always make sure we have open and honest dialogue with employees. We really want our colleagues to feel safe as they return. The last area that I'll mention is around needed for continued flexibility. The COVID-19 pandemic is affecting all of our lives, both professionally and personally. Employees returning to the office will have different needs and some may still continue to work from home and we need to take that into consideration. Things like ergonomic adjustments to our home offices, or work offices, we want to make sure we're keeping those in mind no matter where you work. For those returning, there may be a need for following ADA requirements and accommodations as those are requested. And some of those modifications can be simple to make. We may think about a flexible work schedule, job sharing, or maybe continued working from home or even a reduction in hours. At the end of the day, we know employees are continuing to look for flexibility during this uncertain time. And with the rules of the game changing constantly, it makes sense to be more agile in this situation.
0: Awesome, thank you, Karen. Thank you, Dr. Seidner, Karen Howard, and Kimberly Mashburn for sharing your insights. As always, thank you to all of our listeners. I'd like to invite you to, to visit our website, thehartford.com for all of our COVID-19 resources, including a recording of this and all of our Line on Leave podcasts. And please continue everyone to stay safe and healthy.